On this episode of the Encourage Inspire podcast, I've got my mentor, colleague, and friend Barry Coffin. Uh, we this is a fun episode. We talk about how he got his uh, fresh start in music. You know, growing up in Houston. Uh, we also talk about how he got his professional start as a jingle singer, music producer, and composer that eventually led him out to L.A. And then, um, you know, he gets a, talks about getting a record deal and that flopping. And also, and then that led him to a pivot in where he became a songwriter and producer for uh, writing songs for film and TV. And we also talk about um, how he got started in music supervision, as well as, you know, his passion, passion project, which is Springboard Music Fest and things of that nature, and really how he wants to change and solve the music discovery problem uh, in the industry right now. So hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hey guys, welcome to episode, I believe this is episode six. Uh, by the time this goes to air, it'll be episode six of the Encourage and Inspire podcast. And this is your host, Darrell Peart. And I'm here with my great friend, colleague, and mentor, uh, Barry Coffin. And I'm super excited about this, this, this interview. Um, so yeah, I just want to talk real quick about how we connected, Barry and I uh, connected through an event that he has called Springboard Music Fest and Band Boot Camp through, because he, ha- I actually um, found his conference on the internet somewhere. <laughs> and On the web. You're right. And uh, I think I went in and, and when I applied for it initially, I don't think you were accepting applications. And I think we went back in later on. And then somehow um, you called me out the blue. And it's because you you signed up uh, Xavier. Right. I signed up Xavier. And then somehow, like, you, you called me, I guess, to say that we had gotten in. And yeah. I, I guess you had been trying to reach me for a couple of weeks. So however long it was. And I want to pick up the phone, and one day I just happened to pick the phone up, and it was like, "Oh, this is Barry Coffin with Springboard Music." Yeah, we were about to, we were about to cut you, right? <laughs> we were about to go, like, Xavier, he's out of here, you know. Right, right, right. And so, thank God, I picked up the phone that day, and that led up to a very um, amazing experience and the start of a great friendship, both personally and professionally. So, I'm excited to have my my good friend here, Barry Coffin, with me today on the Encourage Inspire podcast. Man, how you doing? I'm doing good. Hey, so um, while you're doing this, are you um, are you seeing two images? Or are you seeing just you? I'm seeing two people. Okay, great. Then never mind. I'll shut up. I just want to make sure because I've done that where it's like I do a whole podcast and it's just me. You know, oh. like, I just want to make sure you you didn't do that too. Oh no, yeah, because it's just yeah. going to be audio. So it'll yes. be your view. It'll be your view. So whatever right, right. you're seeing, yeah, that's exactly. And, 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 yeah, yeah. So yeah, awesome. Yeah, man. So. Um, so yeah, so I know you grew up in Houston and you've grew up, in, I wanted to get really get to your, your backstory. I know you've pretty much done a lot on the, on the professional side from publishing record deals, all that type of deal. So there's not much you have an experience in this space. Yeah. I always joke my way. I'm just like, my hair looks terrible. I'm going, I wish, I wish I couldn't see me. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was one of those weird things where, uh, I ended up 
being like a jack of all trades, master of some. Right. You know? um, and I, I, because I was involved in a lot of crazy things, I got a lot of experience. And some of them were so intense that we, it would be simply like one or two experiences. And then you kind of know that subject, you know, right. you're not the, the expert, but you know, you, you've got a, a base of knowledge. And, and I ran around and ended up waking up one day knowing more about the music business than most people, you know? <laughs> mostly by failure, you know? Yeah. Hey, the school of hard knocks, right? Oh, I know you said, said- <laughs> uh, yeah. In fact, I, I was goofing off trying to try to mess with. Uh, I've got my one of my beautiful mind books here, and right. I call it uh, a mastery by mistakes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. it's like you know that's that's what theory do you have? Well, I uh, I prefer mastery by mistakes. Right. You know, right. and in a perfect world, I think that's it's not just me. You know, like they have that quote: uh, "A smart man learns from his mistakes. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others." Right. You know, and so it's a combination if you can get really good teachers who've made a bunch of mistakes and then, right. you know, you can avoid making them yourself. You know, it's, it's like learning by cautionary tales. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So how tell me like your early start, like how was it, you know, being from Houston and how did you kind of get your early start in music, you know, um, back then? Because obviously it was different than it is now. Uh Boy, well, it's been really fun where I started because I got ju- I just came in the end of the old school and then I was there for the whole digital revolution. Right. So I've got I was born at the perfect time to be a bridge. Okay. Between old school, new school. You know. Right. So uh, I started with my so my family was a, a tight knit family. Uh, me, my mom, my dad, and a brother and a sister. Right. So the five of us, sort of black sheep. My parents were the uh, the the last children of a dying marriage, so they kind of had stepdads and weren't really, you know, weren't treated quite the same way. They were they were the whoops baby in the middle of a divorce, and I think they bonded over that. And so uh, they they had determined that happiness was a place, and it wasn't in Ohio, you know. Right. When I was a kid, I I went to sixteen different schools to make it through uh, high school. Oh, wow. I had my elementary school was in Ohio and Indiana. Junior high was in Florida. And then uh, high school was in, in Texas. And then, of course, my professional life, I went to L.A. So I kind of right. did that. And, and they, you know, going to 16 different schools, I was an expert on being the new kid. Right. You know, I had new kid down. You know, in fact, if, if we lived in a place for a whole year, it was like, dude, what up? <laughs> you know, my right. brother and I could pack a truck by 14. Right. No, no, no. Okay. French goes here. You know, we like, right. like <laughs> by, by, by the later moves, my dad would just sit in the lawn chair and go, come on, boys. You know what we got to do. You right. Know? Right. Right. So that, that creates a, a certain personality type, especially I was like really, really painfully shy. Right. So you develop the forced extrovert thing, you know, <laughs> because I couldn't personally talk to that stranger or do this thing or do that thing. But Barry, you know, super guy. He was, hey, did you hear the one about the, you know. Right. So right. developed that on the on the cusp of that. The one thing I'll say great about them is when we were in Houston, uh, my brother and I saw an advertisement for the high school for the performing and visual arts on TV. Okay. And we went, oh, my gosh, we got to do it. Right. Because the other thing about that's weird about my family is everybody could sing. Ah. 
So my dad had like a, a, a mixed race doo-wop group in the 50s. Needless to say, a little struggle there. Right. <laughs> uh, they were called the Crusaders, but they did open for Bill Haley and the Comets at like a 5,000-seat arena. That was sort of as far as they got. Right. My mom was doing light opera and, and, you know, theater and stuff like that. Right. So we would take these road trips and it would we would sit, they would sing all these songs. And it really exposed me a lot to the, the the Peter Paul and Mary protest songs and that kind of stuff, you know, very much uh, in the '60s, you know, part of the world. So certain uh, Jesus Christ Superstar show tunes, doo-wop and '50s stuff. Of course, that was their jam, so we knew all that crap. Right. And then my dad was really in the '70s, like would come mm-hmm. home like with the eight-track tape with the first Barry White record, you know, Marvin Gaye, Tammy Trust, a lot of soul stuff, you know. Uh, so I was exposed to a really interesting mix of music and my brother and sister, all, all of us would, could sing in the car. Like we would like happy birthday was, it was a Von Trapp family. Like what part are you taking? It was always a four part experience. Right, right. So much to my chagrin when I married my wife and heard a bunch of people from Texas who not only talked a little funny, but dear Lord, they could not sing. Sing you happy birthday. I'm going, please stop. Make it quit. I did not know that everybody couldn't sing. And I, I found out later in life that no, everyone can't sing. Right. But long story short, we auditioned for the high school for the performing and visual arts. My brother and I both got in, but we weren't really in the school district. Oh. So moving for my family, that's not an issue. They moved the entire family into the school district so we could go to the school. Oh, wow. You know, Barry, that's so powerful because see, I always say this, man, when parents, and I'm not a parent, obviously, but parents at the end of the day when they see their kid has a gift and they want to nurture that gift i mean they did your parents did what they had to do because i guess they knew that this could be something that man, that they could potentially do for a living yeah they, they didn't they didn't have the money it wasn't even that they love music like it was like every other kid like don't you go into music you know and i have right. parents that are, oh my son's a musician you know it's like yeah, they were right. they were effed up in their in their expectations right you know, they thought what what better Right. You know? <laughs> right. So, uh, so they were they were a little messed up too, but to my to my advantage. No, that's awesome, man. Because and the truth is, to pursue this to pursue this industry, you got to be a little crazy. You got to. Okay. Yeah. My my favorite quote is, "You will find no sane men on the top of mountains." Right. I think that's what makes, you know, for for everybody who who hate loves Kanye West, hates Kanye West for the same reason, you know, because. You know, his genius sometimes can be what people are like, oh, he's a little crazy, but you know, you gotta be, you know, you gotta you gotta be a little crazy to want to really want to deal with what comes along in this industry. Well, they want to be famous, man. There's there's something yeah. awesome to want to be that kind of famous. Exactly. And no exactly. one's ever been accidentally that famous. Right. <laughs> oh, I woke up and I was Beyonce. No, you didn't. No, you did. No, you did. You ran Beyonce earned Beyonce. Exactly. And that's what I always tell people. Like people do you really have see people think they want to be Beyonce no do you work as hard as she does because most people don't most people don't most people couldn't right you know when she came <laughs> back on one of the tours I was talking to you know obviously I'm in Houston so I know people in her camp I know her dad I yeah know her dad. yeah and uh and she didn't even know like like when you spend 18 months where they tell you what to wear what to get up what to eat what to you know your right. entire life is programmed and then you've got time off. She didn't, she had to relearn how to live. Right. How to just say, what am I going to do today? Oh, you know, right. like, 
that that's a that's a pretty big and a lot of the guys i know are like that when they do these yeah. long tours where you're gone for 18 months you put your your stuff in storage yeah forward your mail to a certain thing you you know you shut your life down and you become it becomes a time warp and you come back and everybody else is a year and a half older right you know right. you've seen the world or you've seen the hotels of the world you know <laughs> and uh you you know you come back like like and there there you go it's a different it's a different deal and not yeah right. most and most people because Barry, i think people who watch the industry from the outside looking in a lot of times again the grammy time we're taping this the grammys just aired last night to her this year uh and you know beyonce i think um has tied or is now the most has won the most grammys for a female artist ever and i think a lot of people don't realize that well and and taylor swift the what is it record of the year or whatever right artist of the year three three times only three people have done it and she's the only woman right right paul Simon. Oh, is it Paul Simon Springsteen or is somebody? I know Paul Simon's one of them. But yes, yeah, so there there was a lot of women uh, joining first, you know. Uh, but there's also a lot of like yeah, we don't need to go into this because this will this will date. But yeah, I, I and I'm a, I'm a full disclosure. I'm a, a voting member. I'm one of the district advocates. I do yeah. a bunch of stuff with the Grammys, um, and uh, Harvey. Mason Jr. is really trying to to right the ship, uh, but I'm I've I've long hated the way that the Grammys are chosen. Even though I've been part of that that thing, right. I kind of like the Emmys better. I would right. much prefer that there's no first round of voting. Like the way the Grammys work is a bunch of people vote, and the top basically 32 to 34 vote getters right. go to all these committees, and these right. committees are, are around the country different chapters and things like that. And then, right. uh, and then those people listen to everything and they vote and get the final five or six or whatever the final count is going to be. But, but there are great works that never, because they can't mount the first campaign. Exactly. Out in the primaries. And that's like, usually where a lot of independent, pro- right. We, you know, this is you where a lot of independent projects fall, right? Because yeah. what I was told is anybody can submit a project on behalf of somebody else, right? Am I yep. correct? Right. Correct. But most of the time, those independent projects don't end up leaving that primary round because nobody knows who they are. And they can't get the votes. Right. And they'll make a lot of stupid things tactically. Like I know some things. Do not put two songs up. They'll pick the one they want. No, you'll split your vote. <laughs> right. You don't ever, ever, ever do that. Right. You know, it's like if you put two songs in there, you're, you've doomed yourself. And Barry, and again, I love how we had the conversation because we get off into these. That's what's so cool about this podcast. Like, I have questions, but I don't know where this thing's going to lead to. We're just going to have fun. Um, <laughs> right, I'll, I'll, I'll ride it wherever wherever the button goes. Got, gotcha. You know. I, I am somebody who's always still told artists, because I primarily work in the independent artist space, right? That's where, for no, I've never wanted been the one to try to go into that 1%, right? You know my story. You know what I'm about. Yeah. But... Um, I think so many artists feel like a Grammy validates them. And I'm like, no, it doesn't, in my opinion, anyway. I don't think uh, a val- a, you know. It, it, there, there's a level of cachet with it, you know. But yeah. uh, validation, no. Because if you look back through the history of who won the best Grammy and who lost, the, you could tell an amazing tale with the losers. Right. I mean, 
you're, you know, it's Starland vocal band beats, you know, I forgot who they beat, you know, but every, every, everything, there's some travesty, every Grammy where somebody wins over somebody else. Like the guys in Toto, they, uh, they beat Steely Dan on right. one of the records and they're going like, like Toto 4 was a great record, but I forget what, what record Steely Dan had. And they got up there and said, dude, we didn't even vote for us. We voted for you guys. Right. You know, sometimes people will win and be, you know, you know, like they had a great record, but Steely Dan, the, the, the stuff they do to make a record is legendary. Right. Donald yeah. Fagan is just mad crazy about trying to create perfection. He's, he sort of was the next Brian Wilson, you right. know, from the where, where there are these guys that, that it is a religious experience to make a record, you know? Right. So that, that is, uh, that's the level that they were at. And, and I, I think the Grammy should be back in our day, like when Bonnie Raitt won record of the year, right? Uh, she went platinum within six weeks after the Grammys, the Grammy right. took somebody who was, who had like, they had made an incredible record right. and they got it to the world. And, and the Grammys need to go back to that. They need to be, they need to have people in the rooms that go, I don't give a F about what their name is. Who did the best work? Exactly. And, they, and, they, and the rank and file should get, get to choose between the five most creative best, not most popular. Exactly. That's my point. It's, yeah. That, that's, it's, it's, yeah that's, that's, okay. So now we fixed the Grammys. <laughs> so let me I'll, I'll go back and answer your first question which we've been screwing up yeah uh, so i ended up going to the high school for, for the performing and visual arts uh amazing thing changed my life the teachers were incredible and and the thing i learned is it wasn't is even the teachers as much as the fellow students right it's something that they kind of i remembered through doing my own conference it's that you'd sit in what looked like a normal classroom right you're taking english and she's a prima ballerina. What an amazing drummer. Uh, this, this guy is a crazy mad artist. I saw his art show in the gallery. This, like, everybody, they appeared to be normal, and they were anything but. Right. And they were, and then so that, that just, I was, I, I pinched myself for an entire year being in that school. Mm. I woke up every day just thankful and amazed. You know, that I mean, I learned as much from the other people as I did from any of the teachers. Right. So I thought I thought that was when you put a bunch of creative people together, there is an energy and a and a I mean there's there's just something that happens. And you've been to springboards. I tried my best to do the same thing. Right. We're gonna get into that later on. Well, and also too, like the teachers, uh when I got out of school, I, I went and they opened this big thing called the Wortham Center. I had my band, which had two students from yeah. me. You know, the three of us were all in the vocal department. We're there. We, we performed the first original music at this incredible music complex. It's the second largest uh, uh, music venue to the Met. They're able to have two complete operas going at the same time, one in, in another rehearsal space, and it rotates in an incredible performance space. It's, it was amazing. But I'm there on the on you know on the pre presentation. There's all kinds of musical things in different places in the building, and there's you know the teacher you know Doc Morgan, the teacher of the instrumental thing. Like when when our students graduated, they'd see their teachers on a gig. Oh wow! You know? Yeah, and so it's like you're the that was another thing that that I sort of I'm much a bigger I'm a bigger fan of smaller schools. Yeah, um, I like uh, community colleges. You know, like the full sale, the smaller. Small right. schools that are are 
focused where the teachers don't necessarily have a degree, they got experience. Yeah. Experience to me, de degrees are great at teaching you the theory behind it. And that's, exactly. Whenever I've had to use music theory, it wasn't while I was writing. Right. Music theory, uh, and, and this is something I've sort of come to recently, when they talk about the great math geniuses, right. Einstein in particular. Right. You're going, oh, the greatest mathematician of all, all time. You know what he flunked in school? Math. Right. He didn't know math. He, he wasn't good at math. Right. Um, what it was is, is he, he was a genius. So he basically, E equals MC squared. He had a theory. He goes, I don't know why, but this is the answer. Right. And then they spent years and years proving the math to make it true, to, to proving the, it to be true. Right. And it's the same thing. The guys I know that are so good at theory that, uh, that they know this chord should go to that chord and that note should lead to this note and all these things. Mm -hmm. They're not the great writers. They're the no. great arrangers. Yeah, because they don't have a To me, music is about how it makes you feel, right? At the end of the day, the listener doesn't care about the, 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 the theory of it. It's almost like, it's almost like in sports, right? We have a big thing about analytics right now, right? These these MIT guys are are going like, well, he has if he shoots if they shoot these amount of, this amount of threes per game or whatever, it's gonna and so it's almost like it's it goes back to goes back to that movie Moneyball, right? Moneyball back in the yeah, where, I'm a Browns fan, so we got Podesta, the kid from Moneyball, the real guy. Yeah, yeah. with my Browns, and, and I'm liking his picks, so I'm, I'm not gonna call go against him, man, but. <laughs> But the, the thing they, they can never me 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 they can never uh, measure is the heart. Exactly, and that's that that's what Players it goes back to. Yeah. yeah, you gotta if you don't get somebody who's got the heart, all the all this the talent in the world won't do it. Exactly, it's the same thing for what we're doing. I know tons of talented people that are never going to make it. Exactly, exactly. They so don't have I, the heart. Yeah, and I think music is about at the end of the day, man. Music is about evoking emotion. And I've always said that we're you're in an we're in an emotional you're in an emotional business. So if your songs don't evoke emotion, it's not a good song. Well, to to me, art in general, like when I try to describe what is art, art is the ability to create or transfer emotion. Exactly. You do, exactly. You don't make somebody feel something. It's not art to them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a real cut and dried thing. This this painting makes me feel something. That painting, not art to me. And which is what we're going to get into later on, which, you know, the music discovery platform, you're kind of your labor of love and passion that you've been working oh, yeah. on. We'll get well, into it, that. It's all of these, these life experiences in the, you know, that have, have, have led me down that. So anyway, so I go to PDA, do all that stuff. I get a, a opera scholarship to, uh, I had a scholarship to offer to Juilliard, but my family couldn't afford it. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and a lot of my friends were getting all these scholarships and it was one of those, uh, yeah, white privilege doesn't extend to uh, extra scholarships. Right. So, uh, so all my friends were getting this, you know, you know, you're a minority, you're this, you're that. They were getting all these extra scholarships. I couldn't get any of them. Right. And even when I had the full ride scholarship, my family didn't have the means to support me to be there. Right. Like, and they, uh, um, and also too, they were dodging taxes so they wouldn't fill out the fast. <laughs> Well, okay. you know, they had to pay taxes in years. They were afraid the IRS is going to go. You, you too, come with me. You know, right. so they were super paranoid. As was the day for the. You know, they graduated class of sixty, so they had a, a good, <laughs> you know, healthy dose of paranoia. Some real, some artificial. <laughs> right. But if you don't fill out the FAFSA, you're not eligible for any personal. Like I couldn't take any loans out. Like it crippled me. For right. Education. 
Right, so right, right. I went. I ended up uh, going to HBU in Houston, which was Houston Baptist University, but they had an incredible opera department. They were tied in with the Houston Grand Opera and all this. I didn't really like opera, but it was twelve hundred bucks a semester. So I'm going, oh, me, me, me. You know, I'm right. going to take the opera because I wanted to get the music theory and the songwriting. Well, I get in there, and two things happen. One, I'm in theory getting really bad grades because we do four-part writing they say but you can't use anything higher than a six chord okay going you guys are nuts man yeah you can watch this so i just ignore them and see how the nine rubs right there right they give me a effing bad grade you didn't follow directions blah 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 you know i fought tooth and nail with the professors because they're trying to teach music which really has no rules and make artificial rules to teach you you know right right and i get it but it just wasn't what i wanted to learn Right. And uh, and then on top of that, I'd gotten a gig way out in, in, the, in the woodlands, you know, about an hour outside of Houston. Um, and I was playing in a trio doing a Friday, Saturday, Sunday gig, you know. Okay. And I was making like 200 bucks a week playing in a, a gig. Right. And so, but my voice lesson, if you're a freshman, well, let's give him the 9 a.m. on Monday. Oh. So I come in completely trashed to singing pop music and stuff not good for your voice right right Especially right. not for four hours a night right you know so they come in they're going you're trashed again they're like the the, the the vocal teacher who was the head of the department would give me tea and honey and you know yeah he finally said look man you're one of our most promising freshmen but if you don't you know if you don't quit that gig uh i'm gonna take your scholarship we, we we're wasting our we're wasting our scholarship on you. It's like they do with an athlete, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah we hired you to do football. Quit this basketball shit. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Uh, and and I I just went. You know what? You can have it. I'm taking the two hundred bucks a week. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, I, and I tried to go back another time, and that right. was just the my parents laughed at me. That was a bit of a shit show. Yeah. You know, I took film and TV performance, and I took uh, under uh, everything short of underwater basket weaving. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and then my my parents had a bad thing. I'd saved up money for the next semester, and they needed the money to keep uh, going. So at that point, it was like I was a little bit bitter, you know, party of one. Right. Really did me a favor, you know. I didn't need to be in college. I wasn't going to end well anyway. Yeah. Uh, so had the best bands, sang jingles. Really went from playing in places in a ship channel. I had chicken wire, people throwing beers at me, that kind of thing. To having a really being in a rooftop with two or 300 people a night, six nights a week with a killer band playing like a mixture of jazz. And like we were playing stuff like Steely Dan and Sly and the Family Stone and yeah. kind of soul jazz, cool thing, complete meat market, girls every night, like everything you ever wanted, big fish, little pond. Right. Uh, and then um, a guy named Steve Tyrell came back to town who was from Houston. He was a music guy. He discovered BJ Thomas and, and all these people had worked with uh, Burt Backrack for the years, worked at Scepter Records as a radio guy. Yeah. Um, but he knew all the, the brown paper bag, how to get a song on the radio. He knew that part of the music business. Yeah. And he came back and said he was starting a music company with Barry Mann, who was a super famous songwriter, who wrote uh, Somewhere Out There, um, uh, On Broadway, uh, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Him and his wife, his wife, Cynthia Weil, amazing lyricist one of the best to ever walk the earth they were in the brill building back in the day in new york 
that started the music business. Right. They were writing stuff for the Shirelles and the, you know, all those guys. So they were starting a company and he, he, Steve was running around Houston going, Hey, who's a, who's a good songwriter? Well, this guy Barry's got some good songs. And like, who's got one of the, you know, who's a good artist, one of the best bands. Well, this guy Barry's got this, you know, and then, <laughs> well, I'm looking for some young producers. Have you, I, that Barry guy's been cranking, you know, by the third time my name goes, who, he, he, who the F's this Barry guy? Yeah. I'm going to meet him. So this guy, Danny Ward, kind of set up me meeting him. And I flew out there with my, t- you know, my uh, tapes of my band, you know. And uh, Tyrell was just a madman. Like, he's one of those guys. I sort of, believe it or not, he was like my mentor. And I started to, I've emulated a lot of what he did, which yeah. is it's kind of some, it's fun to be that bold guy that that takes some young artist or somebody and goes, boom, you know, hey, you, you think you want to do this here? I got something for you right now. Like, right. I've got interns. Well, they'll, they'll come in and they think it's a nice little internship. I'm going, okay, we got Springboard. You're in charge of the social media to get people to come to the conference, okay? Tell me what you're going to do. I'll give you the supply with the stuff. Here we go. Right. So I, don't, I, I throw them right to the wolves. It's right. the same thing. I walked in the door. He's sitting down there with the director doing a movie called Extremities. It was a Farrah Fawcett movie. Yeah. James Russo's first film. It was based on a, a really disturbing play. So wait, what's the time What's the time window at this point? We're, we're in the 80s, 90s? What, what's the time uh, window? This, this is 80s. Okay. Yeah, and so, uh, um, and and so, it was a. They have this. They have seen up, and there's a guy in the car. This guy's a rapist. He's raped this girl, and gotten away with it. She gets him, traps him, and sticks him in her fireplace, and puts some bars around him, and tortures him back. You know, and so that it's like a really dark, disturbing, cool movie. But they've got this scene where the guy's in a Porsche pulling out. There's like a, a car goes by, okay. and I walk in and. Steve goes, yeah, man. Hey, here's Barry. He's one of our guys we're developing, you know. Uh, and he, Steve, Steve's white, but you never know it. He grew up in Third Ward with Joe Sample and all those guys. He he grew up, you know, yeah. in a neighborhood, in a mixed neighborhood, we'll call it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that there, there's some funny stories about that too. But but Steve goes, hey, play us something. We got need something for here. What do you got? I'm going okay. I whip out a song. It's kind of this rock tune called "You Can't Go On Leaving This Way." We pull it out and. Uh, the director likes it. It's in. You know, I'm going, are you kidding me? I go back home. I'm going, this, this L.A. doesn't look that hard. I come back. The next thing, it's an Oliver Stone film, blah, blah, blah. I have a song called Last Mistake. Boom, it's in. I come back. I go, baby, we're going to L.A. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> so within, within uh, I say, three to six months, we packed our bags and... and, and so, so you were making at this point. So are you married? You're married? At we, well, we've been... Dating for for almost four years, and and uh, we got to the point where you know right. she she proposed in a really romantic way. <laughs> are, are we getting married or what? Right. Uh, I guess so. You know how guys are. You know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, she's in charge of our relationship. Are we seeing other people or what? Right. Yeah. Right. You going to breakfast? Because I'm only going. Like, basically, our whole relationship has been <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. You know, I've been standing on the back of the of the, uh, the, the, the school wall. And she's been the one asking me to dance every time. Gotcha. Yeah, hot stuff. Come here. <laughs> <laughs> so we ran off there and, uh, and we'd gotten before that we got in a terrible car accident. Oh man. And, um, I got a concussion and, and Megan had some really bad, like she, uh, kind of almost went through the windshield. It was a drunk person in a Porsche mm, okay. hit us head on going 80 miles an hour in a little Honda CRX. Oh, wow. 
And I, I did everything to get us out of there, but uh, I didn't. You know, we got drilled. I, and I thought she was dead at the time. It was like a really serious accident. Oh, but yeah. her dad was a lawyer, so we ended up with a, with a, like a seventy thousand dollars settlement. That, so I okay. went out to LA with money. Ah. So I was able to go work like intern for free for Tyrell till I became of value. Gotcha. And so uh, it gave me the chance that she went out and got a job, you know, at a place called Aldous Type Studio. So she learned typesetting. Like she was doing graphics and stuff. In fact, yeah. I had used some of my music money to keep her in her in the Houston or in the uh, Art Institute. Okay. So she okay. got this kind of stuff. We were just talking about recently. She finished the, the course there. And she went over and, and basically her teachers kind of thought, you know what? I don't think you have it. You know, they right. basically were, we're looking at your portfolio and yeah, yeah. There might be something else you can do. You know, like that. And of course she, you know, we were both young and she kind of ignored it. Yeah. And, and now she like teaches at U of H and all this kind of stuff. So, right. so not only did she make it, but both LA was great for both of us because both our careers kind of went crazy. Right. Um, but the oldest typesetter, she learned more about type. It was back when you had to have a typesetting machine to do every font and yeah. how close it was. It was like a real art form. Right. And, and so she did Prince's Love Sexy. She did, like, I wrote a songs for, with Randy Crawford, or I wrote, wrote one song with Ruth McCartney, and I did another one with Randy Crawford for uh, Lean On Me, and it didn't get in the movie. Okay. They, they, Warner Brothers were doing a new record, and her manager was doing a real big push on her. And, um, and so, uh, they, uh, Megan's doing the artwork, typesetting the record and goes, Hey, cause they always overcut in those days. They do 15 songs. And I didn't know if I knew they recorded them, but you never know if they makes the record. Right. So they, uh, sorry about that. You're fine. They, call, they called me back and said, uh, she's going, I'm typesetting. you got two songs on the album. You know, so I found out through her job that I, I actually got on there. Oh wow! Awesome. Yeah, the manager never called me back and said, "Hey, you're in." Right. Um, they usually don't, right? No, no. It's like, <laughs> like like any of those things, like doing the music supervision, or like we'll go, we'll sign a contract and say, "Hey, you can have this song. Here's the terms." We sign the contract. They're they're bound by you know, like we're bound by the, the terms of the contract. They're not bound to use it. Right. So they don't. You know, we we got it. We got it for the price we want. Whenever we want, his ass, it's ours for that. Right. Price. Right. Right. We put six songs in ghost in the shell with scarlett johansson with our, with our company yeah and uh we found out that we got six songs in two weeks after it was in the theaters <laughs> we had no idea like you know going somebody saw the in chris dude you're all over this movie what oh, oh wow and two weeks later we get a thing from from i think it was warner brothers or one of the big companies going yeah we want to finalize that paperwork now really that's leisure <laughs> Right, you know, and the same thing for me. I, I, I got. She had done the artwork. Then I got the re the request for the song, you know, the Harry oh. Fox request to put it on the record. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's that's great that you guys just decided to send me this. The record had been out by then for six months. Oh wow. Yes, you have my permission for the record that's around the world and this song that charted at number thirty five. Yeah, I'll let you record it. I guess. Right. You know, so it was, it was kind of funny. The business doesn't always. Right. It has its own way of working. Especially in this industry. Yeah. Anyway, so I did that stuff for 10 years. Through that, uh, ended up getting a record deal in Asia on Warner Brothers. Ended up starting my own label with Sony Distribution. Uh, right. And uh, did a bunch of public, like when I did a lot of work for hires and stuff, okay. I ended up uh, um, working on a lot of TV shows where they paid us to write songs with, with Steve and Barry's company. 
Uh, and so I put 200 songs in film and TV. I co-wrote with Steve and Stephanie a song called How Do You Talk to an Angel, which is a number one hit and the theme song yep. for a TV show called The Heights. Jamie Walters. Yeah. I know all. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was nominated for an Emmy on that, which means Emmy loser. You yeah. know? Uh, and you wrote yeah. songs for one of my favorite shows growing up, California Dreams. Yeah, I, I actually co-wrote with... Uh, with Stephanie Steve's wife, uh, she did the lyrics and I did the, the music. And Steve, that is so did. cool, man. Yeah, I mean, so I did the theme song that sold the pilots. We had done the Heights in California Dreams, a TV show about a bunch of kids who have a band, and they were very different looks. But we thought one of them will get picked up. It was during pilot season. Yeah, yeah. And they both got picked up, and so we were writing songs and working on two shows at the same time with two different casts. Except that the Heights was was in Vancouver shooting there. California Dreams were shooting on the lot in LA. And then somebody at Capitol decides just for fun to release How Do You Talk to an Angel? Just 200 copies to radio. Okay. Well, they forgot that the marketing department had put minute and a half long versions of a, of a video of Jamie Walters and the guys singing it in all the movie theaters in the US. Oh, wow. Like, and they ran it for two months during the summer. So they dropped that little single and it blows up Z100. It is by the by the first week. It is number six in two in Z100 New York and Kiss FM in LA. Eagle in Philly. Three of the biggest stations have got it in the top ten in the first week in terms of airplay. Oh wow! They tested it. They threw it up there. The, the phones lit up. Well, fuck it. Let's play. I'm oh, sorry. No, you got. They you they, they, they they uh, they start playing it more. So we're going. We have no soundtrack record. We have nothing. We're in the middle of production. We've, we're three or four songs into the whole season. So they go, holy crap, we got it. Capital goes, we got to have a record. We can't stop it. Okay. This, thing, this thing's blowing up. And if we don't have a record, we're all going to lose a ton of money. Right. So Steve and I went up there with one engineer up to Vancouver where they were shooting. We went to Little Mountain, which is where, like, we were in Studio B and C and Aerosmith was an A. Oh, wow. That kind of studio, you know. Wow. So, uh, um, so we go up there and uh, and they we picked up an engineer up there. So I ended up, they gave me the Canadian guy, you know, oh. Dale Penner. Who ah, was, that's how you and Dale met. That's okay. how Dale and I met. And so uh, we would, um, uh, he would go on to discover Nickelback. And, you know, yeah. like, but at the time he was just a the good engineer that they used there, you know. Yeah, yeah, so he yeah. and I, uh, we'd had two rooms going and any, like Steve already knew that Jamie had the stuff. So anything Jamie Steve was what ended up managing Jamie Walters. So gotcha. he, all the Jamie stuff, he really babysat that. The other actors were like, Mary, you got this guy. You know, it's like right. so confident. Some of the other actors were me and Dale's stuff. Gotcha. And then I was the vocal arranger. So any background vocals, I would go between the two studios and do the arrangements. Gotcha. You know, okay. Get all the backgrounds and, and kind of coach the singers up on harmonies. And I would secretly sing in the booth. Ah. I was like, you know, the fifth Beatle. Gotcha. Uh, and it was, at, you know, after Millie Vanilli, so they were a little little nervous about that. So we just kind of quietly did that. Right. Um, but I did nine, I think we did 96 hours in the studio in one week. <coughs> the, the actors, they would do things like they, you have to give them a certain amount of break by union rules. Yeah. So they would take all the actors out of the studio and say, okay, you guys are done. Now go home and get some rest. <laughs> and of course, they you, we pulled them aside and go, "Look, you can leave now, but if you want a good vocal, you'll come back in here and let us finish you." 
Yeah. So they would go, the producers would leave, deniability. The actors, poor actors would turn around and go back in the studio. And we'd keep them till three or four in the morning doing the vocals and they'd have an 8 a.m. call. Oh, wow. But they did it of their own volition. You know, they, you right. know, they did everything right. But, but Dale and I were doing the late night stuff. Like we could barely see. Like if, if I had to go to the bathroom, you know, it was a big issue. Oh my gosh. I hope it's number one. It's not number two. Is it? Come on, man. We gotta go. You know, it's like, so I, I came home tired and constipated. Oh my gosh. And, uh, but we did, we basically did the entire, all the tracking with the our vocals and everybody, and then came back to LA and finished the, the record in, in pretty much two weeks in LA. And we were, we were off to Mexico. So oh, wow. that was kind of a, a crazy thing. Um, and I'm, I guess we've gotten off the, the field, but Long story short, it's cool. Of- it's cool because yeah. believe it or not, Barry, like all the things you said was on my notes to ask you. Oh, okay. And you were just going through it, so that's why I put this. Yeah, just oh, keep, yeah. it's already we're good. So keep. Going. Yeah, they're 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 funny stories, but but uh, yeah. So so ten years of that, then I started doing my own stuff, and uh, I I spent about ten years the rest of, of my balance of time in L.A. doing what I love to do. Okay. My typical year was. I would score one movie. Okay. I'd do one TV series. I'd do one big industrial, like almost like a Broadway showy thing, two records and a bunch of little spot singles. And that was my year. Okay. And that's how I made enough money. And I, I did that for a bunch of years, probably more like five or six that I did exactly that mixture. Okay. And which is brilliant creatively, disaster career wise, you know, uh, because you're not really known as a film guy. You're not really known as a producer. You're not really known as a songwriter. You're different, like a bunch of different people. If you ask five different people in LA what I did, they would give you five different explanations. Right. You know, oh, Barry, he's that producer guy. Oh, he's the writer guy. Oh, he does supervision, you know, whatever. So it wasn't really, it was great for me, but not great for my career. I could have, I've got friends who stayed in one lane that are, that are making you know, a quarter of a million dollars a quarter in royalties. Right. You know, so there's all that kind of stuff, you know, so it was, um, I mean, it was, you know, it was good for me creatively, but not good for me the other, other way. So would you have, would you have, if you could do it, you could do it again, would you have taken the same path or would you have done it differently? You know, I'm too scared. I like where I'm at so well, I probably would have to say I'll stay with the same path. You gotcha. know, I don't know where that other, I might've been rich, but not happy or, you know, yeah. And, but, yeah. You know, my third wife, who knows? Yeah. True. <laughs> uh, so uh, I just decided I wouldn't change a thing when, you know, there were some great things about it, but it basically led me to the path where I started loving to do these indie films, but they didn't have enough money to support me in LA. So I became what I call a music guy. So I'd go to these smaller films that I wanted to do. And I'd say, look, what's your music budget? Just give me the whole thing. I'll be your composer, your music editor, your your music supervisor. I'll do all the licensing, all the music editing, everything. I'll do music soup to nuts. And I'll hire this guy or bring that guy in. But with the whole budget and controlling it in an intelligent way, I was able to do great work and still afford to be working on small films. And support yourself doing it, right? Yeah, yeah. So I did that. And I did that for a certain number of years. Then my dad had had a really bad stroke and my sister was kind of, left doing the brunt of it. And so I moved my family back to uh, Houston. And also too, it, I had four, four kids, or, you know, and I was, we were going, I had back, I had tickets to, you know, you get tickets to shows. 
So yeah. I had, uh, I said, hey man, uh, Fountains of Wayne is playing at the Wiltern. And, uh, and that was when they had Stacy's mom out and, and my, uh, my oldest son was like nine years old or something. Right. I said, hey, uh, do you want to go see Fountains of Wayne? You know, you like Stacy's mom. They're the guys who do Stacy's mom. Right. He goes, um, do you have backstage passes? If, if not, I don't think I want to go. You know, so when your nine-year-old knows about backstage passes and my right. daughters were really starting to realize what mommy and daddy did and dad, can you take us down to Hollywood? And dad, dad, you know, right. they were using the reflected glory. Like they had gotcha. figured, like your kids, you're just that idiot dad. Exactly. But then when they realized that your, their friends thought your dad was cool or your mom was great, right. then they start treating you different and acting different. So all the signs of that were there. Right. And my daughters were just getting to dating age too. Ah, uh, gotcha. It was like the mixed party, you know, this one's 14. I'm going, you know what? I want to screw their world up. So I moved them all lock, stock and barrel to Texas. <laughs> if I move them back, they get to know their extended family. Their dating life starts from zero. Uh, so basically they had to, they got to, they went off to college. It became don't ask, don't tell. I'm great. I'm a great dad. I'm, I don't have to be there for the, the, the growing up part that I didn't want to see. <laughs> You know, and uh, so it, it ended up being a complete win-win. Gotcha. I needed something to do, so um, um, I, I kind of came up with the idea of there were a bunch of programs to make, you know, help me make music, a digital performer and this and that and Pro Tools and all this stuff, but there wasn't anything that helped me when I was working on a movie to license it because I would get in and they'd go, they walk into a salsa bar and I'm going, I am not spending the next 48 hours with shakers and timbales samples trying to make make up a really shitty version of a latin band right i'd call my friends with the like the latin music specialist and that's this company in la and they're these cuban guys that they every time a cuban guy comes into la they get him drunk take him to the studio and record new tracks for film and tv right so they got this incredible license i license it from them and i've got a friend hey can i license your song and and all of this stuff and uh and so we'd started a, a kind of flirted with a company called Uprising Entertainment because I had all these credits and I couldn't, wasn't getting the films I wanted. So four of us put our stuff together. I had a music editor and I had a, you know, all these different people. We put our credits together and we went from having six page resumes to 20 with a uh. hundred films that we did. And suddenly we were beyond reproach for all, and all of us used the same resume. Right. And we also, Julius was, was in my basement in El Segundo, you know, when we kind of formulated that. And we, um, we had all of us had hard drives the, of our friends' music that we would use to put in movies and stuff. Right. So I said, why don't everybody meet at the office, bring your hard drive, we'll trade, and we'll all copy each other's friends and family. Right. So we did that. And then, but once you got to 2,000 songs, you then reached the problem of, I can't find it. It's on the hard drive, and I still can't find it. So you'd end up by, hey, I'm looking for a punk band. Who who had the punk band? Yeah. Oh, Dog Meat on Toast. Thank you so much, Click. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I started. Then I realized that we needed a search engine. So we did something with Final Final FileMaker Pro, real ghetto kind of thing. But I devised this whole thing of check a box. Is it R and B? Is it this? You know, all the basically what would become Music Supervisor. We did a dummy right. thing. Right. I presented it to everybody. And said, do you guys want to do this? Everybody go take your own collection and put it in this thing. And they all went, no. They all went like, yeah, I like the way we're working now, Barry. That's too much work. Forget it. So I got pissed off. And somebody had been bugging me to say, 
man, I'll go into business with you. I think it's a great thing. I'm going, no, 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 I've got to be loyal to my friends and blah, blah, blah. When they turned it down, I went, okay, well, all right, forget you guys. Right. I'm taking this guy's money, which turned out to be a horrible mistake. It oh, cost wow. $100,000 to get rid of my partner. Oh, wow. He ended up not being able to do any of the stuff he said, and you know, but he did do one thing great. He got the rights to musicsupervisor.com. At the end of the day, that was the hostage. It was like, it ended up costing me a hundred grand to my mind for music that don't to keep that domain. Ah, it ended up being the best hundred grand I ever spent. This is a story I've, I've never really told in public. So interesting. You got you know, it. It's funny because everything you're saying, this, I love this interview because it's going to flow. I've written, I've literally have all this written down about, and you're literally just going right down. <laughs> Almost as if I knew my own life. Isn't right. 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 Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, so, so I go back to, 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 Houston and what Houston's got, you know, they don't have a, they've got a good music business, but, but they got oil men. and oil, oil guys, they know about high risk, high return, all that stuff. They're, they're just the same as the software guys. Okay. You know, you're going to dig 10 wells. One of them's going to come in and pay for the dying losers, man. That's the way you do it, buddy. So a friend of mine who is one of the guys who came up with bands with me, Randy Miller, uh, who, in, who ended up, he's producing like Christopher Cross and all these cool guys. He's up in Austin now. But mm -hmm. he hooks me up with a, an oil guy named Jim Stank. Okay. Super nice guy. His son had gone to Full Sail, was an engineer, oh. interested in music and all that stuff. He's, his son ended up working for me. But we have a, a, a lunch, you know, at a Mexican restaurant, I'm sure, you know, because that's what we do. We eat Mexican food in Texas, or it's more Tex-Mex, but, you know, that's the way you do it. So, uh, in fact, I'm leaving from here, going either doing that or barbecue to meet with some some guys, you know, a little bit right after this, man. Uh, and so um, we sit down. I present the whole thing. He goes, "I like what you're doing." And I said, "Basically, we're there's you you go go to see movies. The music, someone has to find the music that's in the movies. I would propose a software that does that." And I give him the whole thing. He goes, "I like movies. My wife likes movies. I like what you're doing here. Will fifty grand get you started?" Yes, sir, it will. Like anyone in the right mind says, don't take a check on the first meeting. I did take the check and I did cash the check, you know? And he ended up bringing in two other partners and they ended up funding the entire first round to, I, I want to say like $650,000. You know, wasn't enough to really get it all the way there, but enough to get it started and do everything. And I learned stuff. I brought in a second round. I had met somebody in a mentoring group, David Skinner, who was just a serial entrepreneur. Um, and he, he saw me in this mentoring thing and he goes, look, these, let's have lunch. This, these other guys are idiots. Let me help you. So he pulled me aside and he helped me raise another, I want to say five, so gosh, a lot. So the first one must've been closer to 800,000. The second one. So now where are we? So now where are we in the time limit? What year, what year is this around? We're in, uh, 2005. Okay. You know, I'm in Houston and, you know. And, uh, and these guys go, let's do music supervisor. So I build it by the, by August of 2005, we kind of open our doors. I bring Julius, you know, one of my guys from the back past back in. Yeah. You know? So I bring him in and he and his wife, it's the three of us, you know, once we've got bad, bad, uh, bad partner out. You oh, know? Right, right. Yeah. And so uh, we start pitching everything in August. And we were collected calling our friends. You know, we basically all know a bunch of music people. Hey, I want to rep you for this. Hey, come on. You know, my lawyer comes in and does Bob Besser, who's an incredible lawyer. He does an amazing contract. 
that that creates a basic basically a non-exclusive agency agreement so people uh. can leave anytime this that and the other but it gives us the power to it's like like a a songwriting power of attorney we're able to put the music in anything we want as quickly as we want negotiate the deal do the whole thing gotcha without restrictions that we we don't stick in porno we don't do anything that would piss anybody off right um and when we do advertising we call them always right uh because there, there's also we're not allowed to grant an exclusive for anything right in advertising they go hey if we're paying you 45 grand to be in a honda commercial i don't want to see your ass in a toyota commercial with the same song right <laughs> although <clears throat> they'll they'll put an exclusive on there so you almost have to anyway exactly so um but it's a great contract we're moving we do not do our first license until six months later and it's when the library reaches about eight thousand tracks Mm. Eight thousand tracks. We got enough to be interested. A supervisor can say, "Hey, I think, you know, I think they may have what I need." Right. But still, everybody we talk to, hey, I've got a library. Yeah, I got my people. Everybody right. was just really tough to get in. They don't want to hear it. They all had their preferred people that they knew, knew and trusted. Right. However, one of the things that I did, knowing as a music supervisor, I never got in trouble in L.A. finding a rock band. Go to Sunset cast a stone, hit two guitar players and a drummer. Hip hop, you know, not a problem. You know, I'm going to Compton, bing, same thing. Yeah. You know, I got in trouble on exotic stuff. So I took money and stuff. And we used the, the backers airline miles to fly my team to the Womex Festival, to be damn and all these. And we signed up every Lithuanian flute player. Oh, everything you. exotic and weird. So when we start breaking, because I knew that was going to be the big thing. So HBO, who didn't want to hear from me, oh, we need something kind of Turkish and something for this Showtime thing or whatever, you know. Right. And then, oh, yeah, I got that. CBS, it was Vietnamese love songs. What was crazy, we had all our people trained to upload. We didn't have any Vietnamese love songs, but but Gail, who was working with us at the time, too, yeah. she was one of the people who came in, she knew one of the guys was teaching a bunch of students, and one of them was a Vietnamese guy teaching a songwriting class to him. So... Right we called the Vietnamese guy. He's got a bunch of Vietnamese love songs. So Julius drives out to Pasadena, signs him up, takes a CD. We pitch it and we place a giant, uh, it was like six grand worth of total revenue for a Vietnamese pop song in C CBS is uh, the unit. Yes. There's a Vietnamese flashback. And, and so we're, we're starting to get that reputation. If you get in trouble, call these guys. And that has continued. Not now we're the same thing. So when 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 we don't have the music, we get the job just under fifty percent of the time. Oh, they wow. go around and they like because we'll ping it out. You know, at the time we ping it out to a certain number of people. Now if there's something we don't have, like for the debt with Helen Mirren, need nineteen sixties pop song must be sung in German. No, we didn't have it. But I put out a, an email blast. Within 48 hours, we handed them an entire CD <laughs> with, with 60s pop songs sung in German. Right. You know, it was like because the, the power we have right. of the network of creativity. And that right. is the strength that we've got with Music Supervisor. That's so powerful. we still have that to this day. You know, and then we started looking for other things. So we, we supply music in Europe for 200 Italian grocery stores and Mediterranean day spas and Swedish eyeglass huts. We've got partners over there that track everything that's played in there. So we pay the right, right people where the PROs around the world, they're not built to do that. So we right. kind of, we kind of do an intervention there and do some direct stuff. So we've done that. I love that. Uh, 
Then we tested micro licensing. We said, what about for YouTube videos, instead of paying us out of advertising, how about you pay us for using the song? Right. And so we tested, we started licensing a bunch of black gospel in Seattle in the test markets. Okay. And we're going, I mean, I don't want to be weird, but I don't notice very many black people in Seattle. You right. Know, <laughs> Hendrix is from there, but I, I lose it after that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And turns out it was a funeral home and they were using black gospel to do slideshows on YouTube for brother John who passed away. Oh, got a real soulful soul song with the whitest face in the world. You know, here's little Johnny too, you know, and all this stuff, you know, he's a family man, this, that, and the other. And, and so the micro licensing, we're really excited about that, but you're going to make money in ways you never dreamed of is what we've come to the conclusion. of. Yeah. Especially with the pandemic and everything that's, I kind of oh, yeah, that that said everything up. Yeah. Everything. And my, my joke about that, you probably heard me say it. Yeah. The, the pandemic COVID was basically as if somebody took a nuclear bomb and they nuked 60% of the music business. Right. The problem with the 60% they blew up, it's where 90% of the musicians made their money. Exactly. It's been devastating for us. Even the big guys and everybody, we kind of were lulled into, you know, recording music. Oh, that's kind of like advertising. It's sort of like radio was back in the day. Right. And it's not. The major labels are making $1.3 million an hour from streaming. Yep. Yep. Spotify, again, not to, well, this will date this, but two weeks ago, got a valuation on Wall Street of $72 billion. They were under $50 billion before COVID started. Right. You know, so COVID been Betty Betty good to some people, just not us. And right. And, and not the, you know, not the independent music. Yeah. And then right. like 30% of everything Spotify streams is independent. But when they pay the money out, 80% of the money goes to the major labels. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like, it's not anyways, we, but I digress. It's not a fair. Oh, no, fair. definitely. No, because I want to get into that. You know, I want to get into kind of like what you st- why you started Springboard? You know, I know personally why you did it, but kind of because you have it because you're like me. You, you really what I love about you, Barry, is that you have because you're creative, because you come from the creative space first. You're an executive as well, but you come from the creative space first, so you understand that majority of what's out here is independent music, and most of these people who do independent music want to be in a major label space, but most likely will never get there. Right, it's because it just you just they just can't, you know what I mean? It's not they're not good enough. They just can't, you know. So you created Springboard, as you tell me, as a major fu to anybody who's listening, who likes who are South by Southwest people. I know you are, but Barry's a guy. He's a rebel, so he said, "Hey, this is gonna be a big no, fu." Got, it's a <laughs> okay, so let me let me explain that. All right. <laughs> Uh, so I grew up in Texas at the second South by my band was supposed to play there. Okay. And Tom Zutat from Atlantic was coming out like when South by started, it was the coolest thing ever. It was the opportunity for people from the South to be here, be seen by the A&R guys of Nashville and London and New York, you know? And uh, so I loved it when it's inception and I, I leave Texas and I run off to uh, LA. LA and stuff. I'm in one of the markets. I don't need to be, you know, I can, I'm running into people at the coffee shop, you know, yeah, yeah, but yeah. most people don't. And uh, I come, I come back, you know, periodically and I see it start to deteriorate, you know, and right. it started out, it was, the, it was South by was designed for the music, you know, for the bands and the music business, you know, yeah. and the clubs there it was sort of like a trifecta of music people. Right. 
now it, it, it evolves to being so valuable to the city of Austin. Last time I looked, it was $360 million of economic impact for every South by. And I'm right. sure it, uh, there's other things that would make it radiate further. Right. But it was incredible. It became a big part of the, their revenue. Sixth Street was it? You used to play on Sixth Street. In the, yeah. They I've been. Cool. I, I went to 2014, so I've had a chance to experience it. Uh, and I, you experienced it. You didn't experience real South by. Yeah, I know? probably didn't. But <laughs> it does look like when it takes over, it looks like, not, you know, The Walking Dead. They take the street over. Oh, and yeah. You can't believe at night how crazy it is. Yeah. But it was like that every weekend. First off, the drinking age when I was young was 18. Oh, okay. And they have all these colleges there. And and I mean, it was crazy. And they, and they the bands, it was live music at almost every venue. And what they would do is if you were playing in a place, when you took your break, if you just said you could walk across to all the other venues and see the other bands, you just say, hey, I'm playing across the street. Can I just come in for 15 minutes? So there was no cover charge. They'd let us in. They had a, all the doormen had an open door policy. Gotcha. And so we were all meeting each other. It was the most incredible thing in the world. So we're better to do music festival with that many music venues in, in a three block radius. Right. So it grew up and it was good. And when I had my label, we were going, we went down and we're seeing this band Velvet Hammer, all girl kind of rock band or, you know, mostly girls. And they were like hard rock heart. You okay. know, I mean, killer, just really. And we almost, we tried to sign them and uh, to my production company and they, they sort of voted against me. You know, they said, eh, Barry's a little too commercial for us, you know. Uh, and some of them, some of them wanted to go with me and some of them didn't, but we didn't pull it off. But it was, I brought my team down there. We all flew down to South by. It was a thing that the industry went to. And I watched it deteriorate to be where, oh man, I forgot Secretary's Day. Why don't you send uh why don't you send Melissa down to South by tell her she's representing capital. You know, it became the place where you sent your secretary, no deals got done exactly. you go down there to announce a deal. Yeah. We signed these guys. Why don't we go down there and pretend like we're signing at South by. Right. It became nothing what it was. And the, the, the clients for South by became the guys that originally started and sold it. <clears throat> the new people, their clients were the city of Austin and Budweiser. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's a theory. They don't even care about, you know, they, they, they don't, right, exactly, which is why I, I don't even go to it. I don't even go to, <clears throat> I don't even go to it anymore because it's like, it's a party. It's not, you're not, it's not what it was. And again, it's not what it was really created to be initially. You know, no, and no, well, and now their, their clients are, they're, they're, they're technology. Yeah. You know, incubation. The, the film festival part is kind of a cute thing, but it's, it's okay but music keeps going down. Like it's less and less of a deal that the trade show that had all the music stuff and all that, they canceled it. Exactly. So that, so that yeah. leads you it's only to tech and gaming. All oh, gaming is blowing up. Exactly. So they just, they found a new, they found a prettier girlfriend. Exactly. You know? And so, so this leads you now to say, okay, well, I have a great idea because I was, <laughs> it, was, it wasn't as good. It wasn't as polite and nice as that. It's like on, South by Southwest turned to shit. They yeah. are the film thing. They jumped the shark. They're no longer it at all. Right. You know? And and I kept saying, on my worst day, I could do a better conference than these guys. Better yeah. Better. yeah. And then some somebody called me on it in Houston in 2012. They well, I'd done a renegade thing in 2010. I took over Speakeasy on Sixth Street. You know, it was okay. always Fourth Street. So this Blue is doing. This is doing South by. Yeah, Fourth Street at Con Congress, and okay. I run 
two band camp, band boot camp things. So there. what ended up being at Springboard? So basically what you do at Springboard, you did there? I tested at South by, yes. Okay. And uh, the crazy thing, we took over the roof balcony, and that's where I did the first moment of truth. So I had Chris Malair was at the very first thing. Yeah. I he, met him at um I seen him at um in, in Mark Fraser, his his uh sick they cafe. Yeah. yeah, they did a course together. Yeah. So Chris yeah. is incredible. He's a music supervisor who eats, sleeps, drinks, breathes music. He's what you think a supervisor is. He's that on steroids. Right. He loves bands at a level you can't believe. Every every Burning Man, this thing, Coachella, he's at everything. Right, right. You know, he's in Hawaii right now, you know, still supervising shows and everything and still flying in for concerts. He's got life wired, you right. know. So we're up there and I get these people and I do the moment of truth. And the way we do it is it was still the age of CDs back then. We take a cardboard box and we pass around the audience. Hey, bands, if you got a CD, drop it in the box. They drop it in the box. We pull it out and go, Joe Blow and the no Nobodies, come on up. One minute of one song, what do you want to play? My big fantasy of the moment of truth. Right. Like, instead of doing a panel of, of talking about stuff, how about getting to play your music for these guys? Right. <clears throat> so we did that. And the first mistake I made was we started giving uh, the panel tequila shots. Uh. So we start with, and Chris is a really nice guy. And some of the other people, everybody's pretty nice guys, but but some of them were harder and some were softer. Chris was a real positive guy, but the tequila over time flipped my entire guys. So Chris and some of the people, like people, the nice guys become mean, the mean guys become nice. We have a complete personality shift. I'm still keeping it together. And the drinks keep coming. Once we get them going, they keep coming, you know. And this one guy, you know, and we had no quality control. So this guy puts in a CD that is just terrible, badly mm. recorded. And mm. Chris now has had one too many drinks. And he oh goes, my gosh. oh, yes. He goes, I don't even know what to do with this. this is, <laughs> you know, this is the worst piece of shit ever. <laughs> this guy, like, he's like, oh my God, it's gotten out of like, it's gotten hot. Like he made Simon, he was Simon before Simon, you know. It was oh my gosh. Before. You know, so, but they were, they were, it was the beginning of what would be, the, the stuff that I would do for springboard. And then I did it in Houston, 2012 in an outdoor area in, um, it was called city center. And it's kind of like the center of Houston. Houston's moving kind of North and West. Yeah. And this is the new, if you were to take the Houston population, this, this would be the center of it. Gotcha. Okay. And it's not downtown. It's sort of moved West and North. Okay. And so I get an outdoor stage and it's a pretty, the, the person in charge of the event of the, 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 the place, it's a very upscale design community. They have living spaces, they have restaurants, they have workspaces. It's a designed cool area with an open air stage and just beautifully done. They've cut certain uh, paths for wind that create a wind tunnel because Houston's hot. So it has a cooling breeze all the time. It's some really great architecture and stuff. And the person running it, um, had a certain idea of the clientele she wanted to draw. Okay. So after I've already done it, and we and basically in two weeks I've got 54 bands. This is on the boot camp is around the corner at a a Turkish flower shop, ba bakery, and uh, coffee shop. Okay. And so we have tables and stuff. We're doing the panels there and putting the guys at tables and, and teaching you know micro classes and shifting and yeah. a lot of different things that things that we 
didn't work or did work. And, you know, right. we're always evolving. I'm always tweaking springboard just a little bit. Right, right, right. We had that. But then they say I was tied into Houston Community College. So the film school came out and shot every band. Okay. Um, so we, we like a lot of the things that we've done, we, I tried to tie in the community in, a, in the best way. But they come in and they say, I mean, Houston's a big hip hop community. The yeah. number one radio station when I was growing up was Magic 102. It was urban. Houston is not what people think it is. The number one radio station has been urban for decades. Number one oh, wow. TV, Latin, Telemundo, oh, rules. Wow. You know, so there's a lot of, Houston is not like every, every day now, 71 languages are spoken in Houston. Oh, wow. There are more those- Chinese in Houston than in San Francisco. There are more wow. gay people in Houston than in San Francisco. It is not, you know, it's not what people think. It's a, it's a melting pot. It's like a New York or LA, right? you know, or Chicago. It's, it's got a lot of different people. So it's really cool. But they tell me that after I've booked the thing that they don't want any hip hop on the main stage. Now, why is that? They didn't think it was good for their brand. <laughs> so being the rule follower that I am, I did not put any on there. However, I did go and take that Turkish place, turn it into the hip hop stage and put all the hip hop artists over there. So I opened up a second stage so we could do that. Yeah. And then I never went back there. <laughs> but uh, but uh, anyway, so that was the start of Springboard. And we've, uh, we did it in Houston for six years. Then I started expanding it. I did Springboard West and added San Diego. Right. You know, so I, I tried to do it uh, at the right time. You know, so um, I like in January, we're all twiddling our thumbs. The music business shuts down. What a great time to have a conference. And in San Diego, where it's warm, everybody in Canada and New York and the East Coast going, yes, I'd love to go to your conference. Exactly. We're at 70 on the beach. I loved it. You know, I I was good. I've been fortunate to experience Houston and San Diego and had a great time. Said, love what you're doing there. You know, um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the fact that um crap i lost my train of thought here um well i've got, I've got about like 10 more minutes before i i turn into a pumpkin okay so if there's anything cool. crazy you want yeah yeah so no so we'll, 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 we can end and just say let's real quick talk about um kind of what you do when we get music with with um your discovery platform i just kind of want to touch can we touch on that or you sure. no not at all we'll I mean, kind of end it we'll, we'll end it there okay great uh so, so needless to say, I have a legacy for trying to fix problems. Yeah. I like, I like systems. I like complex problems that I, I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm like the guy who must like the 5,000 puzzles or something. I need something. It's gotta be hard or I'm not interested apparently, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, everything's been about not really, it's really about making something better. Like, yeah. So springboard was my version of what, how did you make a, a great, music conference and festival that's great for the fans yes but it's great for the industry and the artists so one of the things we did that make it different is we'll have as many as three thousand bands audition for a slot and we're going to pick 50 to 100 yeah that's it and then we create a custom conference for them so in san diego one year we had a bunch of really good hard rock bands so i bring in the president of metal blade records i bring in jet blue who signed lincoln park i take the bands and then i bring the panelists that suit the the, the talent so right. talent we go uh and i've made a lot of mistakes along the way but we've ended up where best available athlete i don't care what kind of music you do what genre 
The only thing that we don't do is traditional gospel, which we did at once, because it's an ecosystem that's completely different. Exactly. Which, no, you're right. Like churches, but we'll do the closet Christian bands. We'll do the Switchfoot Creed, because yeah. they're going in the real world secretly Christians. Exactly. The Lecrae, <laughs> those people. So that was sort of my criteria. You know, gotcha. you can you can praise Satan, praise the Lord, but it's got to be, uh, you got to be able to play a mainstream club while you're doing it. Right. You know, uh, so, you know, so if you're playing, playing the cult lodge or the church, now nah, I can't help you because I don't, you know, that's a different ecosystem. Yeah. 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 So, uh, uh, so with, 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 uh, the springboard thing, we, we then do two days of a band boot camp, coach them up with great mentors. They play unplugged all the bands we go, we mirror a radio tour. So they have to do one song, just one instrument, a couple of microphones, and what that does in the industry is you go, uh, without all the production, the guy can really sing. Without all the production, that's a good song. They, and then we do an interview right after. And you know what? That Darrell can talk too. Okay, yeah. I'm in, I'm interested. So then we do the festival the third day. So all of the industry people that have been teaching the classes, they're making notes at the Unplugged thing at night, which is strictly the bands and the mentors. It's a closed thing, no public allowed. Right, right. So they make their notes and go, yeah, this guy could be for me. So what time does he play? And then we stagger the stages. Like normally in San Diego, we'll do four stages. But we start, we do 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off. And we stagger the start times every 15 minutes. Yeah. So if you're an industry person, one of the things I always hated was you have to choose between this band and that band. So right. I'm going, no. You see this band for first three songs of those guys? Let's see the first three songs of that guy's. You make the round and you can see every single band. And in fact, we've we've awarded fan awards for the fans that uh, saw every single band at Springboard West. We flew two of them down to Springboard Houston to go for free. Oh, wow. Nice. You know, because they 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 were the, the super fan. You know? right. So right. anyway, so that's my vision. That's what, what Springboard is. So the other thing that I've come with music supervisor, I solved the problem of finding music for film and TV and getting your music presented for film and TV. Okay. It's a fair deal. It's a great deal. We get paid when they get paid. It doesn't cost the bands anything. It's a non-exclusive agency agreement that that we're like basically working on on uh, you know commission only. Yeah. So and we, we don't retitle. We don't take your publishing. It's no long term thing. You're in a month to month. You can leave. It's a very great. I try to do the win 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 scenario. Yeah. So as I'm seeing the music business evolve the current music business for streaming and ways to make money with recorded music are broken. They're horribly broken. And there's th three kind of corporate empires that have taken over the music business. There's the, there's the major labels and publishers, you know, they, they're still, they're in the music business, but they're in the, their music business. They, yeah. They're all about the music they own and control and keeping everybody else out. Exactly. They, want a, they want a rigged game, not a fair fight. Exactly. They're messing up certain things that they do. And exactly. the same thing, they're bribing at radio. Now that it's Spotify, they're buying the, the any podcast or any any uh, playlist that gets a bunch of subscribers. They go and buy them. The three major labels have secretly bought, you know, half of the the the, the playlists that are worth having. So they're doing what they do. It's the one-on-one big powerful label playlist. And there's great guys that work at those that love the artist and a lot of the artists we we love to this day wouldn't be there without major labels. It's not all evil, but their overall business practices are counter to new music and discovery. 
Right. You got, you know, you've got the, the streaming platforms, you've got Apple, you've got, you know, title now, not really, but you know, mm-hmm. but you've got Spotify and then, you know, the, the president of Spotify said, I'm not here to save the music business. He wants a cool thing that every band he wants in his pocket. And that's what they're selling. Right. They're, they become these stores with 70 million pieces of music in it with no real search engine. Right. Like Spotify. Oh, you'll find it on a playlist. Well, they got 70 million songs and a billion playlists. Are you really going to find it? Are they made for discovery? Nope. Well, we gotta, we, we've, we've invested millions in artificial intelligence. We're going to look at what you listen to and tell you what you want to see in the future. And that's not how you discover things. Discovery means you get exposed to something you never would have listened to. Exactly. They're not good at that. Exactly. They're good at giving you more of the same thing, just like the radio things. This thing was a hit. Let's give me another one of those. Yeah. The record labels. That band's great. I need my own Drake. They got Drake over there. Get me a Drake. I, I want a black brother that rocks it. You know, <laughs> so they go around and they've turned it, they try to turn it into a math equation. Right. So they're not made for discovery. And they're already got like Apple, once they're not selling, they were in the hardware business. They're in the Apple business. Once they quit selling iPods, now it's like they're in a healthcare. You know, they're closing down <laughs> iTunes. They're like, We've, we've used music. It was great. It was fun. We love you guys. Have a nice life. We're off to the next. Event. We'll stream some stuff. It'll be great, but eh, we don't really care. Yeah. You know, and then, then Spotify, they're, they're doing, you know, they're doing what they do, but they said uh, th- the reason they went from 50 billion to 72 billion is they said, what can we do? These, these damn musicians are wanting to get paid. They're starting to do lawsuits. They're starting to fight. This is going to be a hassle if we have to pay them, you know. And so uh, they they look over and they go, "What? Who can we? Who can we? What kind of content can we deliver that is even cheaper to acquire or cheaper to pay?" And they go, "Podcasts. Ugh. Those guys never get effing paid." So they buy Joe Rogan's podcast for a hundred million dollars, buy another one for two forty. They've now changed their name: Spotify Music and Podcasts. You know. And Apple's going, we got a new search thing for, and we're going to do more podcast subscribing, you know. So they're all into podcasts now. So they're, they're about to, to keep us in check because they found somebody else, like Joe Rogan and those guys will get paid for their podcast. Everybody else, you're just supposed to do it for exposure. Sound familiar? Yeah. You're on the radio for exposure, you know. Yeah. Like it's, the world's like that. And then my final beef is social media. Like I got, I got a fairly recently, I got all the rules for the new Facebook organic reach, which is a nice way of saying how many of your people they'll actually show your spot to, you know, and it's 5%. Yeah. So they cap you at 5,000. And then when you post something out, they change their rules used to show more people, but now they're going, let them eat cake. You know what? Uh, You put it out there, Darrell, you got 5,000 subscribers to max to let you have. And we're going to show 250 people. Now, if they engage, I'll show some more. If you pay, I'll let you have access to the rest of your fans. Right. That is not sustainable for the music's a full-time job. If you're going to make me have a fan base, like in order to use your platform to talk to 5% of my people, you know, uh, I got to pay you to talk to more. I'm going to build something. It's like building your own house and then someone charging you to live in it. Yeah. Now you got to pay rent. Dude, yeah. I built the house. Yeah, yeah, we don't care about that. That was so yesterday's. What have you done for me lately? Yeah. You know, so on the backdrop of all that, this is FU streaming. Yeah. So 
I'll start with everything, a half of a, you know, like we'll start with the things I'll do the things I hate in seven minutes. Okay. Number one, I don't know about you, but I didn't vote to have songwriting be 10%, which is what Spotify and all the streaming things. Songwriting and publishing 10% of the money, that's what you're worth. Okay, I didn't vote for that. I don't know who did, but somebody made a deal and it wasn't me. Right. I think songwriting is more important than that. Right. So on my, if I ruled the world, and in this case I do, we get music, you know what? Uh, I'm gonna double it. I'm gonna do all the lawsuits they're trying to get 44% more. I'm gonna guarantee you that. Shit, I think you're really gonna get double. I'm gonna give you 20%. You know, so I work backwards from how people are paid. Right. You know, so Spotify and all these guys, they basically, the basic rules are originally when Apple iTunes started, it was 70 30. Okay. 70% to the music people, 30% for Apple. Then Spotify came in, everything did it and they renegotiated and uh when they did uh apple and title and spotify and all those guys got an extra six points they're up to 36 uh the songwriting they said songwriting publishing 10 percent and 54 percent to the master rights holder artists and everybody else i hope it trickles down and that's currently how things are paid in the ballpark you some people say 52 some people 54 whatever that's a ballpark you know it's tough to find the truth around right now uh, you think it's tough to find it in politics? Try finding the music business. Good luck with that. Uh, anyway, so that's the ballpark. So I said, screw that. I'm going to take, let's just take the pie that goes to the artist. I'll do this. I'll go back to the 70-30. But let's take that. Let's create, take the artist as 100% pie. Uh, because, and I'll tell you why later. But, but let's take 10% of that pie and set it off to the side. Now we got 90%. Mm-hmm. Cut it in half. Let's give the master rights holder. If you paid for the recording, you're the record label, you're the rich mommy and daddy, you took the risk, God bless you. Here is 45% of the money every time it's streamed. What? Which, which seems fair. Yeah. The other side, I go, let's give the other half of the pie to the creative side. Yeah. So let's double the songwriting to 20% from 10% to 20%. And the last 25%, I call the Aretha Franklin rule. Every time while she was living, she sang, and now that she's dead, you hear her singing respect on the radio she ain't getting any she right. gets zero money and there's a long reason for that but basically they pay three cents writer three cents publisher f you aretha f you atlantic mm-hmm. you know and that happens to every american yeah we're, 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 we're one of five countries that don't you know we don't have time to get into that rule but yeah we don't recognize that we could go that's another subject but anyway yeah. so i said screw what anybody else says I think that Aretha is 25% of why I'm listening to that song. Right. You know, Otis Redding wrote it. He's making the, the songwriting money, but but uh, nobody's but he's not right. Yeah, nobody's know, going. Nobody cares. Did you hear everybody. Otis' version of respect? <laughs> I maybe I don't remember. Didn't right. make an impression, but right. Aretha sure shit did. Yeah. So yeah. I said, regardless of what it means, like in my world, 25% performing artist royalty. I don't care right. if you didn't write it, I don't care if you didn't pay for the recording. You are still a reason that I love it. You need to be paid fairly. Right. The last little 10%, let's put it back. Let's call it a production royalty. 3% for the producer. So the three producer points that was an industry standard on every record sold. Now let's carry that over, make it three points on every record streamed. Yep. Fair enough. Engineers, most of them get, it's a work for hire. You get paid. Good luck. Yeah. They're more important than that. Let's give yeah. them a point. Let's go a half a point to the engineers attracted, half a point to the engineers that mixed it. That seems fair. They're in for it a little bit. Yeah, you pay them to keep them alive, 
But if something goes wildly successful, they should be rewarded too. Yeah. Then my my last six percent to the guys that played on the record, yeah. and that to me is a, it's sort of my uh, Michael Jackson role. So I know the guys Gary Grant and Bill Reichenbach and the guys that played the horn were the horn section on Thriller, and they they're they they are Toto's Rosanna. They're one of the best horn sections in the world. Most recorded, they're incredible. Watching them is like watching a ballet in the studio. They are incredible. Right. And they charge Michael everything you can charge Michael. Uh, it was triple scale. It was double every time I pick up a horn. Everything they could do it. And at the end of the day on Thriller, they all made, you know, some of them made a little more because they arranged, but it was generally about five grand. Right. On a record that sold 42 million copies. How is that fair? Right. You know? So I said, how about 6%? Not like, not like sound exchange, 6% of the 5% of the 0.00166. No, F that. Six points. Prorated. The horn section gets a point. The background singers are a point. Drummer gets a point. Your guitar player, you don't get every time you pick up a new guitar. You're contributing the guitars one share. And it's prorated shares. Right. So that to me seems fair. And so, uh, and I don't care what your contracts are with someone else. The, the, the next rule, I'm tired of the major labels cluttering things up. So guess what? On my new platform, you know, like our, our thing is we get artists, when we get music is going to have no major label content. So you're not going to have to fight to get air to get exposed. If you're no major label, nobody currently on a major label will be in our thing. So now it kind of makes it, it makes it more, more available, right. you know, but, uh, but in addition to that, so I've got a different pay scale. So the other thing too, is the, the streaming sites, let's go look at those guys. They had, uh, they basically said a half a penny or whatever their rate is. They say, we're going to pay you so low that it can be streamed a million, million, million times. And we won't, we'll lose, we will be very seldom that we will lose money. Right. Um, but it still encourages more plays, meaningless ones. Turn your thing on and don't turn it off because it's a half a penny each time. <laughs> Tell your fans to turn it on. Uh, you know, robots in Asia, you know, running in and, 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 and was put to cell phones, listening to things on Spotify, you know, trying to, you know, and Spotify loses millions of dollars to that. So they're always playing whack-a-mole. They've got robots trying to prevent the cheating. And I'm going, I got a better idea. How about we partner with these people and how about we do a user-centric model? Which yeah. user-centric means we haven't established a price for this. So somebody comes in and pays 10 bucks a month. Me and the artists are partners, just like music supervisor. Yeah. So my thing's, the agency agreement, I get a split of the total. So the, the higher the pie, bigger the pie is, the more money I make, the more money the artist makes. We're on the same side. Right. So I said, Let's put the artist and the company and the platform on the same team. So we put the credit cards are taken off the top and the streaming, the bandwidth costs are off the top. We split the profits. So we do our 70, you know, 30 split on the profits. And so there's no incentive to gin up the numbers because what we do is if, if somebody's paying 10 bucks a month, uh, that's them telling me I'm going to be in trouble. Okay. That gives them 10 bucks a month. Uh, the average Spotify paid subscriber listens to 200 songs. So out of those 200 songs, they end up uh, paying about 88 cents for the music and everything else they pocket. Right. You know, if you go to, we get artists, I've got a calculator showing how each person is paid according to that that metric right 
including our proposed thing. So on our user-centric model, somebody logs in, listens to, to one of Darrell's uh, songs, and then goes on vacation. We're going, well, it's 30 cents for the credit card fee. The streaming stuff on one stream is just, you can't even count it. It's nothing. Because we're paying nine cents a terabyte on Amazon. You know, so we're in the cloud there. So that's, it's nothing. So we split that. So basically, you're making just under seven bucks for one stream. Yeah. So compared to half a penny, seven dollars is my math's not real good, but, but that's, it sounds that's, like that's pretty good. Staggering, right? Yeah. Now, but even in the even in the they listed two hundred songs, even the Spotify model. You, if you go to We Get Artists, you'll see the calculator in work. It's we we're paying five dollars and like thirty four cents to the music creators instead of eighty eight cents. So on <laughs> average, this thing's going to pay five times. All right. You know, so I'm going great. So I'll, I'll end with the the thing that I think is the coolest thing. So comparing Spotify and we get music at scale. Let's assume that I'm wrong. It's not five times as I can pay double. Okay. So Adele, fastest song to a billion streams. Like that's the lightning in a bottle, amazing thing, right? Right. So her song, Hello, goes to a billion. Spotify pays $5 million for that at their half a penny at their little deal. So they go, hey, Sony, here's 4.5 million, writer and publisher, you guys split 500,000. There we go. So I said, on my thing, I will pay the first bit exactly like Spotify. So Sony, here's 4.5 million, writers, here's 500 grand. Now, since I can pay double, I get to pick where my second half goes. Right. Sony, fantastic. Uh, it's a single. You made 4.5 million recording it. I know you didn't spend much doing it. So, congratulations. Thanks for taking the risk. I'm not giving you another dime. Right. You know, that's our 45% rule, right? Right. So, on the other 45%, writer and publisher, you just wrote the most popular song on earth. That should be a lottery ticket. Let's make it one. How about a million dollars for the writer, million dollars for the publisher? <laughs> uh, an extra 1.5 million. You won the lottery the way God intended, right? right. That's the way it should be. Right. And you know what, Adele, thank God you wrote it and all that stuff. You'll make some money. But what if she didn't? What if she were Aretha Franklin? If that was Aretha Franklin. Aretha, you are the most popular singer in the world right now. Here's $2.5 million. Buy a cute little house. Something with a pool in LA. That whenever you're visiting Adele, you can, you know, crash there. That seems fair to me. Our right. last 10%, our lucky little production credits, they're small. It's a point here, they're half a point. Well, that shit adds up. Hey, producer, you just produced the single, and for that single, three points is three hundred grand. Yep. Now you can go produce an indie guy who doesn't have any money. Right. Your your wife is certainly going to be happy. You know. Right. Hey, engineers who tracked it, let's keep the let's keep the boyfriends and girlfriends happy. Uh, here's fifty grand for you guys to split. Take them on vacation. Right. There you go. That's your that's your hello to hello vacation. You know? Right. Right. Engineer who mixed it incredible mix here's a half a point there's 50 grand to buy that motorcycle you've been wanting to buy right all right let's go to the the six points for the creators or the the the, the band drummer 100 grand bass player 100 grand keyboard player 100 grand three background singers you split 100 grand there's 33 grand a piece go make your own record yeah that is how we pay out regardless of other contracts if they don't want to do it that way go somewhere else so I'm a benevolent dictator, not asking for consensus. And I don't want you to show me your contract, how it's, it's a work for hire. I paid the engineer. I paid the producer. Don't care. Right. 
I don't want to be a dick, but you didn't pay him enough. Right. You paid a, you paid a background singer a hundred bucks. If you go on to make a million dollars, is that fair? That's not fair. No. Know. So I like, it, it's sort of like if I ruled the world, well, you know what? I've spent, I've spent 20 years trying to fix the music business. So if it does happen, I rule the world, my house, my rules. Exactly. And I'll leave it at that. That's what I'm doing. You want to check out what we're doing. You just go to wegetartists.com and we're starting the messaging there. But we're well, hoping Barry, to come out soon. Man, I want to thank you for, you know, we, for, for this interview. You are, like I said, you've become a friend and a mentor and somebody that believes in what I do. You've always championed me. And uh, like I said, this podcast is called the Encourage and Inspire Podcast. And you continue to encourage and inspire me. I want to thank you for your time. And ladies and gentlemen, he's an advocate for independent music like I am. You know, he's an advocate for the artist who wants to be able to make a living doing this. He never said get famous. He said make a living. And that that's what we that's what we preach here. So it's rich and famous, but it's it's big R little F. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You, you, so, can, you can stand for six figures and well respected. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So yeah, but if, you, if, if your deal is where did I play tonight? Didn't you already win? Right. Are you exactly. playing tonight? Oh, I gotta play tonight. Have you got to play? It's exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. Exa exactly. Yeah. That's it. It's like find something you love to do and then figure out how to get somebody to pay you for it. Exactly. Like I always say. So yeah. with that guys being said, I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode of the Encouragements by Podcast. And this is your host, Darrell Peart. Until next time, I'm out of here. Peace. Perfect.